So today, I'm happy to introduce a friend, a person who has become a friend over the years. And uh, I was just reminding him, uh, Jonathan, that when we first met him, he was so kind. We met him in Efrat, which is his hometown, through a mutual friend. And uh, we had lunch together, and then he took us off to uh, visit this famous oak tree that was a part of the 1948 uh, story of the um, War of Independence. That's a famous oak tree that I keep asking David if he would do a painting of, but he hasn't yet brought himself to do that. But uh, that's how we met Jonathan. And so Jonathan has remained a friend of ours ever since because he comes back and forth to the United States and he, uh, we've seen him at Christians United for Israel. So you see on the screen here um, that Jonathan is in front of a truck that says something with uh, John Hagee, who is part of the story we're gonna be telling today, which is who are the Christians? And I don't know if um, uh, Steve Crane is here today, but Steve Crane asked the question, when do we hear the good news? We're hearing all this anti-Semitism stuff. When do we hear the good news? Well, today is the good news. Today you're gonna, last week a little bit, but this week particularly, uh, Jonathan and I decided that this was an opportunity for us to have a conversation together about who the Christians are who support Israel and support the Jewish people. Now, I have a different view than Jonathan. I am much more cynical than he is. He's much more positive than I am. And um, so we're going to go a little bit head to head today uh, about some things. I had sent him the questions that I sort of had that are going to show up somewhere along the way while he's speaking. But what Jonathan does, and he'll tell you more about this because I'm going to leave it in his court. Um, what Jonathan does is he comes back and forth to the United States, making friends in Christian communities on behalf of Israel and the Jewish people. He's been doing things like this for a long time, uh, but uh, currently he's working under the um, uh, umbrella of his organization called Genesis 123, which uh, does a bunch of things. And maybe he'll mention some of those things. But uh, Jonathan Feldstein is a good friend to have. And uh, he lives in Efrat, as I mentioned, which is the location for where this uh, family of three, a mother and two daughters, were uh, shot uh, to death two weeks ago. So, um, okay. Um, so if you're not muted, you might want to mute while Jonathan is on. Uh, you can put your picture up because we're not going to be showing any videos today, to my knowledge, unless, Jonathan, you have something. But then you have to tell David if you've got something. And, I'm, I'm, um, I'm going to close down the uh, I'm going to close down the slide. OK, OK. Uh, so here. Uh, so really, Jonathan is our star speaker today. I'll be interrupting him on occasion when I say you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, Jonathan. No, I'm only kidding. But um Anyway, so Jonathan's going to tell us the good news about Christians who uh, support Israel and Jewish people. So here you go. Jonathan, you're on. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I'm going to talk about the good news. And it's funny having an Orthodox Jew in Israel speak about the good news, because, of course, good news can also be interpreted as the gospel. Um, that's not my intention. Uh, but Susan, um, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm really, really grateful and also reflecting what you said just from that very first day outside the pizza store in Efrat. It was such a such a delight to get to know you and David and 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 become friends and stay friends. And and ex over the years, all these opportunities, not just to see each other at, at various events, but I have to tell you one of the things that was not only so meaningful for me, but has become in many ways a paradigm of what I like to do when I'm traveling is that lovely time, it's more than several, it might be 10 years ago that you hosted me and I spent Shabbat in your home and you invited people and we did a prayer, or we did the Friday night service together and you got kosher food, which I remember was delicious. Um, and it was really, it was wonderful, which is a great way to spend Shabbat. And ironically, later this month, I'm traveling again and and i choose now to spend my shabbats and holidays when i'm traveling with christian friends 
uh, not going to a Jewish community. Um, many people, many of my Jewish friends think that I'm crazy and don't understand that. But that was at your home that that time was one of the first and really most meaningful. So I'm really grateful to be here. And yes, to talk about the good news, but just to speak honestly, and, and I want to encourage everybody at the right time, open questions about anything, anything I mention, anything I don't mention, by all means. And certainly, should you want to be in touch afterward, uh, to feel free. So let me just qu quickly give you a little bit of my background. Um, I, I know, I don't know if you're all in the greater Delaware area, um, but I'm from not far from there. I grew up in Princeton, um, spent most of my elementary and high school years there in public schools. And I uh, graduated Princeton High School, went to Emory in Atlanta and spent my life there until, I'm gonna come back to that, until I moved back up to the North in my early 1990 to meet my wife. Um, we're now married, June will be, next month will be 31 years. You have six children, uh, one who's married, one who's getting married in July. And my youngest grandchild turned one today um, of three. And, and that's amazing. Mazel tov. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so why, why is the background relevant? I grew up in a, not a particularly religious home. My mother, for some of you who may know, was a, grew up in the reconstructionist movement. One of the most interesting, and I would even add unusual Jewish movements or denominations, because it's very, very brilliant founder excised God from the picture. His whole penultimate book, which is a fabulous book, Mordechai Kaplan was the rabbi. Um, his book is called Judaism as a Civilization and, and talked about Jewish life and Jewish culture and Jewish values, but removed God from the picture. My father, on the other hand, was a secular Israeli, or sometimes if I want to get into an edgy political conversation, I'll say he was an original Palestinian because he was born here in Haifa in 1937 <clears throat> and went to America only as a teenager with his mother so she could reunite with her three uh, remaining siblings who, who all, the three remaining ones who survived the Holocaust and uh and all had migrated to New York. So my father, until he brought us, well, his father's funeral in 1963, and then sometime in the early 80s, brought us on kind of a family roots trip. But Israel and my Jewish identity was always uh, a part of me. Um, I'll, I'll speak about my speaking in churches, but I always say that my, not just Jewish identity, but Israeli identity, was with me from as early as I can remember because my father had an accent until he died. He always called me Jonathan. You know, he could never pronounce the name he gave me. And so I, whether he was telling me to go do my homework or rake the leaves or shovel the snow or any other fun thing that he wanted me to do, it was always with that Israeli inflection. And since I was a teenager, I had wanted to live here. Now, before that, I finished Emory. I was very involved in the Soviet Jewry movement and pro-Israel uh, pro um, activities on campus. So I was recruited to work for the Israeli consulate in Atlanta at the time in the late 80s. Some of you may recall, uh, my boss, the consul general, was Israel's first Arab to head a diplomatic mission overseas. There had been Arabs in the diplomatic corps for many years before that and, and in second and third uh, positions, but Mohammed Masarwa, who was my boss and the consul general was the very first. So I would do a lot of his writing, um, a lot of writing and, and speaking for the consulate as a young man in my early 20s um, from New Jersey. And that's important because A, I had to learn what it meant to be an Israeli Arab and B, and, and of course to write for him, but B and more significantly for this conversation, I ended up traveling to places that I had never been and never imagined I would go to including all throughout Alabama and Southern Georgia and rural Tennessee and parts of South Carolina that I had only driven through on the way back up uh, to and from New Jersey during my school vacations. And in, I would say, probably 95% or more of those cases, I wasn't representing Israel to the Jewish community in these places. I was representing Israel to non-Jews. And intuitively, most of those people were Christian. 
I wish I had the presence of mind to know the significance of what I was doing then, especially, I always have to mention his name because I somewhere hope that he he's alive or his someone will know his descendants. There was a very tall, thin black man, Bill Cherry, who picked me up one day at my apartment on Buford Highway and drove me from Atlanta to Cleveland, Tennessee. Now, I had never heard of a Cleveland, Tennessee. I knew of Cleveland, Ohio. I love classic rock. There was a there, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was there. That was my only re- reference to Cleveland. So Bill Cherry picks me up and drives me to this church in Cleveland, Tennessee. And with the only exception of growing up sometime in my early teens, my mother taking me to St. Patrick's uh, Cathedral in Manhattan because she thought her sons should have an exposure to multicultures and what have you. Um, this was my first experience ent- entering a real church. And I don't know what I said. I wish I had a recording or notes of that. Uh, but what was fascinating is I walked in, it was either 1988 or 89. I was in my early 20s. And I walked in to see Christians dressed in blue and white costumes, dancing Hebrew folk dances and singing uh, Israeli folk dances and, and singing Hebrew songs. And I'll be honest, if I could have kept scratching my head, it would have been down into my throat. I didn't understand why Christians would care about Israel, much less celebrate Israel. And that is etched in my mind and my heart until, until my last day. It's where I also understood that I needed to, to play a part in figuring this out and be and building a bridge between Jews and Christians. So this is where I started. Fast track to the early part of this century uh, when I made Aliyah and I started working, <laughs> excuse me, working for different organizations. Um, I began to engage Christians in ways that I never had. And I understood the significance. I also enjoyed it tremendously. And I took on myself the responsibility, not just to build bridges, and we'll talk about that, but to break down stereotypes and barriers among Christians and among Jews. And honestly, it's among the latter that I have even I've had even more challenges where I sometimes refer to what I do on a day-to-day basis as a contact sport. But 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 generally I've been enveloped with love and support and enthusiasm from Christians who who are interested in Israel and the Jewish people, understand biblically from many, many touch points why it's essential to connect to Israel, to support Israel, to pray for Israel, to bless Israel all based in, on, on biblical sources. And I've had the real un, unusual privilege of being an Orthodox Jew. Um, and I, I don't say this to um, make myself sound more important because I'm not, but to kind of give you a sense of sometimes how I feel like I need to pinch myself. How is it that I'm the first Orthodox Jew, maybe still the only one to have spoken at the Billy Graham Library? or be at Billy Graham's 90th birthday party, for which many of my Christian friends are envious. Um, I'm the only Orthodox Jew with a weekly podcast about Israel from Israel on what's called the Charisma Podcast Network, which I know Susan knows and others may, is is one of the leading international, US-based international Christian media networks. They have about 300 other podcasters who are evangelical Christians, and Jonathan, who hosts Inspiration from Zion. And you're all welcome to check that out on the Charisma Podcast Network and Spotify and Apple and wherever else um, you, you, you might listen to podcasts. But things like this have been really tremendous. Um, one of the things that I learned over the years and bothered me, I by the way, I also I, I say this for a reason. I do a lot of writing. Most of my writing is on Christian websites, Charisma, one called All Israel News, uh, some other smaller ones. There's one in Nepal that has been publishing my stuff, which is kind of interesting. And as of a few months ago, I'm an exclusive correspondent for uh, Sweden's largest Christian media 
uh, where they have me writing a, a, a monthly article, which is lovely. And I say this because that's where I write. That's my audience. And that's who I want to communicate to. But in what year are we in? Six years ago, I wrote an article on e-Jewish philanthropy. I'm glad to share that with anybody who wants, called using the Yiddish phrase, Ashanda for the Goyim, an embarrassment in front of the Gentiles. And the notion behind that is over the years, that had already been well in, well more than a decade of my working with Christians, I, I was exposed to something that really troubled me. The proclivity of Israelis and Jews, Jews in America and Israelis, here, who are mostly Jewish, doing what I call the objectification of Christians as a faith-based ATM, simply trying to get money out with as little interaction as putting in a magnetic card and punching in a four-digit code. It's not relational. It's often dishonest. It takes advantage of good Christians who hear from Jews or Israelis and include and Christians as well, but that's not my Place to, that's not my battle. I'm not a Christian, and it's not my place to call out Christians who who lower the bar. But I realized, no, this is not an acceptable way. I was working for a couple of organizations at the time, building up their relations with Christians, but their relations that they were interested in only had dollar signs attached to it. So I was very successful in that. But I realized after multiple uncomfortable circumstances, which included things that were certainly um, dishonest, maybe even illegal, that it wasn't for me to continue to work like that. So as Susan mentioned, I established the Genesis 123 Foundation to build bridges, to do so in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful, not to make money the central issue, and to create actual relations in the process. So through that process, I, I, Susan had asked me in a question by email to quantify how many churches or s- such things that I've spoken in. I, I don't know. I've lost count. I've spoken in so many churches. I was, I, I was almost tempted to say today in all the denominations, but I can't say that because there are so many Christian denominations. And honestly, that's sometimes confusing for me. I'm not an expert in Christianity. I don't feel like I need to be an expert. I don't understand all of the nuances between different denominations. To me, I'll make a relationship with anyone who wants to make a relationship with me. Um, and 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 I'm very good about that, and I'm very sincere about it. But I've spoken in any number of churches, from large mega churches of, I don't know, probably 10,000 or more, down to small Uh, home churches of 20 to 30 people. For most of us, the COVID pandemic is behind us, but there are still opportunities that you may not know about that can help you, your church, other nonprofit, or business. The Employee Retention Tax Credit, ERTC, is important for all employers to explore and potentially receive a significant financial credit for having retained employees during the COVID shutdowns and business disruptions. If you have not already applied to receive the ERTC, part of the U.S. CARES Act, for your church, nonprofit, or business, please reach out to my friend, Liz Browser, who can help you. Liz is from Sheridan Wealth Advisors, a boutique tax advisory firm based in Miami. She provides honest and customized concierge service with a strong specialty in nonprofit and faith-based organizations. On top of being a great professional, Liz is really one of the good guys. She embraces the importance of building bridges between Jews and Christians. It's personal, so much so that she and Sheridan Wealth Advisors will donate a portion of their income to support the Genesis 123 Foundation in building bridges between Jews and Christians. It's what I call a win-win-win-win. Reach out to Liz directly in the U.S. at 954-258-6097, 954-258-6097, or email at liz at sheridanadvisors.com. I'll say this, the churches that I'm speaking in are the ones that are interested. They're the ones that want to have 
a guest from Israel, that they want to have a sincere dialogue, that they're interested in um, connecting and and learning. And there's a lot to learn. Um, there's a great story last year when I began traveling again after COVID had shut down everything. I was introduced in a church at a, in, in, in Kentucky by a friend who's the pastor there. And he introduced me as, the, as an Orthodox Jew from Israel. And I spoke. I don't remember what I said. After the service, a woman came up to me and she said, so you're an Orthodox Jew? And I nodded. I said, yes. And she said, and you believe in Jesus? And I said, no, I don't. And I tried to explain the difference. And I highlight this because I find that across denominations, throughout many experiences, most, may, but certainly not all, Christians don't know the difference. What's an Orthodox Jew? What's a conservative Jew? Why don't Jews believe in Jesus? And what don't we believe? And why don't, and all of that. But I have honest conversations. But for me, honestly, sometimes it's very uncomfortable because I know to say to a Christian, no, I don't believe in Jesus as Messiah, the same, the same that you do, can be troublesome, can be offensive. And my goal is not to be offensive, certainly. Um, Susan, remind me, we can come and talk about some funny stories relating to some of these conversations as well, things that are glaring and things that have been educational. So I'm going to churches that that are that welcome having me, but they don't always know what they're looking for. They don't they know that they that there's a biblical imperative to bless Israel. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you, Genesis 12.3, from which we get the name of the organization that I run, the Genesis 1.2.3 Foundation. Um, They're looking for sincere connections, but there's not necessarily a lot going on on a regular basis. So the pastors and the churches will use me kind of as a lightning rod around which to galvanize at that moment. And then what I try to do is maintain the, the the relationships. I will tell you this. Um, many of them do have ongoing programs. I spoke yesterday to a, a friend who's a pastor in um, Houston, and she was sharing with me some of the things that they do, particularly with their children, which is very refreshing. But um, I, I just want to share one fabulous experience, and then maybe, Susan, we can break into a dialogue. Earlier this year, the only time I left Israel this year was to go to Congo the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. I had never been to Africa, always wanted to go, but in all candor, Congo was never, never even on the top 10 list. Um, I had to look it up and find out more about where Congo was and what kind of government it had and what was I going to. And I discovered that Congo is, I think, the second largest geographically in the whole continent, the fourth largest in population with over 100 million people. And fascinating, 90% of those people are Christian, and they are pro-Israel to the to, to the bone. It's fascinating to me. Um, the president has been very bold in the African Union and the international community and in his support for Israel. And you see that trickle down. I spoke in three or four churches there, two of which, not because I was there as a guest, because that's the norm, the norm that they do, had two flags on their dais where the where the pastor was preaching from, the Congolese flag and the Israeli flag. In one of the churches, they sing Hatikva in French, not because I was there as a guest, and they knew the song. It's not like it's not like they were rehearsing to welcome their Jewish guest Jonathan from Israel. They sing Hatikva at every Sunday service. And that's extraordinary. And it's extraordinary to have thousands of Black Africans singing Hatikva in uh, in French with the, with the Israeli flag up next to the Congolese flag. And one more fabulous thing about Congo, just to underscore a degree of genuine love, actually two things. One is, it's the only place that I've been outside of New York on the day of the uh, Israel Day Parade, which usually happens in the springtime, where, you, where on one day of the year, you can buy Israeli flags on the street corner. In in my 10 days in Congo, 
I passed four, I think, different vendors who were selling selling Israeli flags on the street corner. Now, why is that important? Congo is also one of the poorest countries, not just in Africa, but in the world. People don't sell things that aren't going to move. It means that people in Congo genuinely are buying the blue and white uh, star and two bars uh, on the Israeli flag, and they're decorating it. And as an Orthodox Jew, I never took off my kippah anywhere. People would come up to me on the street, smile, say shalom, welcome, want to take a selfie with me, maybe part of it because I'm white. And that was novel, although it's really not that novel there. But but certainly me standing out as a Jewish person in Kinshasa like this. And the only other thing that I'll say about this, which goes to a very high level, if you will, of of that biblical um, understanding, is many in Congo believe truly that their nation has been cursed because Congo turned its back on Israel in the 1970s, because its president then, Mobutu, being pressured by the Arab uh, the Arab League to break relations with Israel, spoke at the UN and said, I'm making a choice between friends and neighbors, and I have to choose my neighbors. And because of that choice, even though he was passionate about wanting to connect with Israel, his breaking relations, many Christians in Congo still feel today that their country is cursed and therefore all the more reason that they are embracing. Now, Congo is a unique example. It's not Western, but I see bits and pieces of that throughout my um, travels and throughout my experiences online. And maybe just one fabulous extra little throwaway in the course of the last three years, because everything was pushed to be online, I've developed a whole network of Christian friends in Pakistan, Pakistan, the Muslim country whose passports are stamped that they're not even valid for use to travel to Israel. These are Christians who are very bold, who love Israel, who love the Jewish people, who want to connect with us. And some of them now are asking me, how can we come and travel there, even though our passport won't allow it? So it just gives you a, it's it's a very, very, very broad strokes. Susan, maybe you can hone me in on things you want to discuss and certainly conversations that others might have as well. Well, I, I did want to mention to you that last week we had a guest speaker on uh, whose name is Susan Michael. You might know Susan. She's from, a good friend. Uh, I love her. I, ICEJ. And one of the things that she, I think, was really uh, not new f- a fact for me, but it really was in a new context. And she was talking about how really Christianity and it's uh, the, I'm going to say the Israeli orientation, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong on this, has moved from uh, Western Europe and the United States down to Africa. Uh, And I'm going to say Africa, South America, but I don't know whether South America really, uh, she's saying from ICJ's perspective, which of course is an international organization, She's saying from ICJ's orientation, their uh, their original uh, their original founding was from Europeans, but now they're finding that most of their support. And if you go to their prayer network, which is weekly on Wednesday, you'll find that an awful lot of people who are leading prayer for ICJ are from Africa and South America. So she's saying the whole focus is moving in that direction away from uh, what we're seeing is the anti-Semitism rising up in the United States and in Europe, um, which, of course, you know, you're bringing that into focus for us in a different way. But I wanted to mention that to you uh, because I thought it was an important uh, worldview. Let's go. Let let me just add and compliment to that because you've been discussing anti-Semitism. Uh, two weeks ago or three maximum, I hosted a new and very dear friend, an Iranian woman who became a Christian in Iran and was arrested and, and sentenced to death as a result of what they called apostasy. Obviously, she wasn't killed, and that's miraculous. And we became very good friends, and I took her to Yad Vashem, and she wept. She's a crier, but one of the places that she wept 
was in realizing there's a small exhibit in Yad Vashem that that talks about the anti-Semitic origin in the church. And she had no knowledge of that. So what you're talking about, Susan, particularly in non-Western countries where there's not a tradition of anti-Semitism, you have Christians all over the world, even in Pakistan, that are that are the country is anti-Israel. You have Christians all over the world who are embracing their Christianity without the baggage of Western anti-Semitism and not only aren't anti-Semitic, but can't understand how and why the, anyone who calls themselves a Christian or part of a church would ever let, let that happen. Well, just uh, kind of a, as a part of that conversation, I think that the way I've taught it, because I'm interested not only in the history of anti-Semitism, but also in the theology of Christian anti-Semitism, which means, of course, that we focus on that, uh, is the is the theology of Christian anti-Semitism uh, uh, is European. It's European right. and then moved into the United States. Because why? Because the whole Roman Empire became part of what Europe is. So right. the Roman Empire, which is the origin of, uh, of the Christian world, if you will, was the Roman Empire, is that you can understand how it would be that Christian anti-Semitism, i.e. rooted in Christianity, would be European and not, and also uh, just to expand, I know that you probably haven't gone to China, but uh, Chinese Christians, of which there are a growing number, are very much pro-Israel, very oriented toward Israel. They Because they see it in a simplistic biblical sense. If they read their Bible, they can't avoid this. Whereas Europeans were polluted by the original theology that pulled away from um, the idea of uh, uh, pulled away from the Jew, the Jewish Correct. people. Yeah. So uh, that whole false theology, if you will, which is what I've been fighting for the last 20 years, is actually that it's kind of a false theology that was invented by a bunch of people who were Roman Empire source source of the Roman Empire. And the people who are in China and maybe in Pakistan and maybe and also India and also uh, Africa are not um, are not um, yoked to that history. Correct. Correct. So and it's not in the Philippines, and not, in, not in the Philippines and not in Korea and not in Japan and and on and on. Yeah. And, and, and it's very inspiring to see that uh, I'll call it and maybe it's not. Correct, but I'll call it pure Christianity. That's not that's not corrupted by replacement theology and Western anti-Semitism. Yeah, well, I think that's an interesting conversation, and I um, I hope that as we uh, move into the latter parts of this discussion, that people will start raising those questions because I one of my uh, developing good friends uh, in this class is uh, Diana Lopez, who is here. And she and I have been uh, discussing um, the Episcopalian problem. Now, the Episcopalian problem, uh, she will explain a little bit maybe later, uh, bringing up the, the issue of the, uh, Anglicanism, Episcopalianism, which is an offshoot. I don't understand all that. She will explain a little bit more of that. But uh, in uh, they're having a split between their European and American contingents and their African contingents. Their African contingents are much, much more oriented toward what the Bible says. And the ones in America are trying to be politically correct. 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 So I think, uh, Diana, uh, if you want to chime in right here, if you're up for it, um, you can chime in right here and just give us some clarity on that, please. Oh, well, thank you, Susan. I think uh, you did a good job. And I saw Jonathan nod his head. So obviously he agrees with you. Uh, I left the Episcopal Church years ago because it seemed to be um, discounting the Bible. And um, the Bible is a very important uh, resource for me. I I treasure the Old Testament, the New Testament, Old Covenant, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I treasure it from Genesis to Revelation. and so there were there were many others that felt the way I did. And as the Episcopal Church began to depart more and more from biblical Christianity, um, I looked and 
stumbled into Anglican Christianity, which is just going back to the roots of, you know, where my ancestors were from in England. Uh, anyway, so um, the Anglican Church has its problems. It's kind of going through what the Episcopal Church went through 15, 20 years ago. But there is a very strong movement um, that certainly GAFCON doesn't take all the credit, but GAFCON has been um, a movement to uh, bring together all the um, the Christians, the, the Anglicans, Episcopalians, who, who feel the Bible is the word of God. And uh, so they have definitely gone down the path of, you know, I'm sure most, I think right now in the Anglican church, something like 85% of the Anglicans in the world are in the Southern hemisphere. They're in Africa, they're in South America. And so it was the tail wagging the dog for so many years that we had the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, which, you know, goes back to King Henry, um, that was the leader of the entire Anglican church worldwide. And at a GAFCON, <clears throat> the fourth GAFCON celebration just a week ago, they issued a statement uh, from Rwanda saying that this is not the case, that from they they will look to the leadership um, as you know biblical leadership and not just the historical uh, Canterbury. So it has been a huge shift in the Anglican Church, and um, it's been a roller coaster. I always think people should move faster than they do, but they keep reminding me the church doesn't always move that quickly. Um, but it has been hopeful that at least this particular segment of the of the Christian world seems to be seeing the light, and one hopes that that will keep spreading. Thank you, Susan. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Uh, she and I have been talking about this Anglican thing for a while, so uh, I'm glad you had an opportunity to talk a little bit about it. And the whole issue of going back to you, Jonathan, um, is uh, the African's Southern Hemisphere, uh, the Southern Hemisphere. Now, I, I don't know, we had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, his name is Perry Trotter, who is from New Zealand. And he says there's a very, very active. Now, of course, this is a your remember your uh, New Zealand and uh, Australia are both European centered. Uh, but he was talking about the problem of New Zealand and uh, the large contingent of anti-Zionist uh, anti-Zionist movement there. I don't know whether you're familiar with that, but he's a Christian talking from the point of view of having being a supporter of. Israel and the Jewish people from a theological point of view and uh, seeing the real issues of uh, the problems in New Zealand. Well, I, I'm not specifically familiar with New Zealand, but New Zealand, Australia, um, parts of Europe, um, albeit that Europe is more impacted by a rise of uh, a Muslim population, which also changes the conversation in the countries. But theologically, you're you're talking about very different kinds of Christianity, I think, than than you're talking about among it, th from Delaware through Arkansas and uh, and a lot of the Central and South America and Africa and some of the other places that we spoke about. I want to pause in the conversation for just a moment to invite you to join us in one of the really incredible programs that we do as part of the Genesis One Two Three Foundation. This year, we have been going out all throughout the Judean mountains to show love to soldiers who are stationed keeping us safe from the threat of terrorism. It doesn't matter if we're in a burning heat wave or temperatures below freezing before the wind chill, they are out there guarding strategic points that have a high risk of terrorism. And thanks to the support of many people like you, we are pleased to bring them homemade hot soup in the cold of winter and cold drinks and sweet watermelon in the heat of summer. Any donation is meaningful and helps us to bless the soldiers. You can join us and donate at genesis123.co slash 
bless a soldier. That's genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. And when you do, you also have the opportunity to send along your own personal words of thanks and blessings to the soldiers guarding the land and protecting the people. Please join us. Talk a little bit uh, to the extent that you know this, uh, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Let me just ask the question about whether you're aware of, uh, in general, the denominations that have been open to having you come. Because I would say, I mean, this is just my opinion now, uh, and not just my opinion, because we've done a lot of fair amount of research in this, is that the mainline denominations are less welcoming to a Jewish Israel message than um, than the more charismatic Pentecostal you know, groups. So sure. to the extent that you might know that, uh, I'm not. Hold, I'm not trying to hold your feet to the fire here. No, no, but I'll, uh, but I'll affirm that it's 100% the case. Um, me not being an expert, and early, I would say early on, when I would see a church, a church for me is fair game to have a conversation. But but um, any number of of mainline denominations aren't interested or are interested in um, in connecting with Israel. And connecting with the Palestinians, or or moral relativism, or uh, I'll use a phrase I don't have a better one, but watering down um, biblical text, uh, where where we don't look at it as scripture, where we don't look. So so there's no question that the more mainline ones are not interested. Uh, that's not to say that they're not having what what are loosely known as Jewish Christian dialogues, uh, where where they in, in a community where there are Jews and Christians together, they might host and model Passover Seder kind, of, which is basically like show and tell. It's not really substantial, um, but I, I'm in favor of people connecting on any level that they want, as long as it's got integrity. But for sure, no question, charismatic Pentecostal. Uh, denominations. You, I think you had written a, a, a question to me, Susan, specifically relating or, or adding to it relating to Baptist as being mainline. Um, I, I again, I'm not the expert. I don't see that, but I've been in Baptist churches. And by the way, um, not far from you in Maryland. Oh dear, what's the name of the church? First Baptist Church of Glen Arden in Maryland. Pastors become a very good friend of mine. A mega church, five thousand, mostly black. The the black Baptist church AME are very different than than Southern Baptist, and Southern Baptist have more of a theology. I think that is um, uh, more leaning toward replacement theology. Although tremendous support for Israel as a state, um, because they still see the prophetic nature of of Israel's return. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that. I I think that probably there are about eleven different Baptist subdenominations within Baptists, and that you can find everything from very conservative to very liberal to very right. this to very that. So they uh, they vary quite a bit. Uh, the one thing the Southern Baptist is the largest of those denominations. Yeah, and uh, that brings up another question that I think people might be interested in, uh, which is the idea that when they see a Jew, you're, o- you're open game for converting, uh, con- trying to convert you. So in most, uh, we when we first walked into the kingdom of God, so to speak, we, we joined a Baptist church here in Wilmington. And um, uh, I think that in the 19 years that we were there, uh, I rarely heard the term Israel or Jewish people ever, uh, but uh, and the it's an it considered itself an evangelical uh, church, and um, the idea that if they saw you and you were a Jew, that meant that you were uh, supposed to get converted to believing in Jesus. So that whole notion is not uncommon. 
structured within Christianity. Sure. Um, I don't know how much you come across that, but come across it plenty. First of all, when you walk around with a kippah on your head in in Christian settings, people will naturally assume that I'm a Messianic Jew. And matter of fact, I had one guy from Pittsburgh once approach me to believing that I was a Messianic Jew like he was and telling me about all the tricks that he is engaged in to, to proselytize and convert Jews. And after listening respectfully for a period, I said, I'm sorry to confuse you, but I'm an Orthodox Jew and I believe that Jews should be Jews and Christians should be Christians and we should probably work to underscore and keep ourselves rooted in our respective faiths and build bridges. Um, and he didn't know where to go with it and that sort of ended the conversation. Um, yes, yeah, so I... I I wasn't trying to be rude, but as a matter of fact, the opposite. I was listening with it to him respectfully. Um, I experienced a whole wide range of of things. Uh, first of all, so my, the point being is that if someone thinks that I'm a Messianic Jew, they're not necessarily trying to convert me. But I've had conversations that have been unpleasant or yeah, unpleasant, uncomfortable. Um, one one woman and, and you and other Christians here will get it. Uh, somebody who I know um, always used to tell me almost any time I would see her and a friend, this is not somebody who's a stranger, but almost every single time I would see her would tell me, Jonathan, you need to get down on your hands and knees and accept Jesus um, so you'll go to heaven. And one time she told me, Jonathan, you need to get down on your hands and knees and accept Jesus. So you and Lori, my wife, who she met, who she'd met, and your children will all go to heaven. And I wasn't in the mood at that day for a deep theological conversation, but I understood that she didn't even understand her own theology because Jesus is a personal Messiah. There's not a grandfather clause. And so it was funny that she was telling me that I was going to bring on salvation for my entire family through, through me doing what she wanted me to do. Um, but I, my many Christian friends of mine, first of all, to be a friend really means mutual respect, uh, and, and even with differences. And I have a lot of friends, you know this, Susan, and, and I differ theologically with a lot of friends. I differ with a lot of Jewish friends, um, but I, I can still be friends and I can still have an intellectual conversation and, and still care about that person and their life and their well-being and pray for them. The same way, but many of my Christian friends always will say to me, you know, I'm praying for you with a little wink, wink. And the praying for me with a wink, wink means that I should accept Jesus. And I said, you can pray for me all you want. And then I will enter a conversation about why I don't need Jesus, because I'm a, I'm a member of the original covenant that God never broke. And and if he broke the covenant with me, he just as easily break the covenant with you. And why isn't it Muhammad instead of Jesus? And, and, and where where is that going to go? And what what makes your theology? I and I I have an edgy belief about about it when it comes to Christianity and Jew and Judaism together, as compared to others uh, other Jewish friends who who don't look at that. But I'll I'll share this maybe as a last point on that question. But you feel free to to dig deeper. This past Shabbat, my wife and I were in a hotel in Jerusalem, invited by a Christian group to be their host, if you will, to, to, to give them a Shabbat experience. And it was lovely. I, I always enjoy doing that. Susan and David, it was in your home. We had that great experience. But I will go to, when we can't invite them or they don't have the time to come to our home or community for Shabbat, I always accept the invitation to go to Jerusalem. And one man came up to me after all of this, and he said, you've challenged me. You've challenged my theology because until I met you, I believed that I believed in the verse that you can only uh, help me with with the New Testament. I don't know the source. Um, you can only access the Father through the Son, and I see in you and your wife, godly people, who are who are part of a covenant, who are engaged, and you've challenged my theology on that. Now I don't exist to challenge anyone's theology. I exist to build bridges. I like to break down barriers, both between Jews and Christians. When I, when I have Jewish friends who tell me I'm not allowed to speak in the church because it's against halakha, it's against uh, Jewish law, I'll tell them why they're wrong. Um, so I get, in, I get into it on both sides. But 
I, I have the full range of experiences from people who pray for me to, to, to change my belief system and be saved and, and people who understand that I am a member of the unique covenant that is only for the Jewish people and that is an involatable covenant and um, God never broke it and never will to people who then look at me and say, wow, you really shook me up. Well, the new the new theology, or at least one that keeps cropping up, uh, is um, now the through the new covenant, God's covenants have become universalized. I don't know if you've heard that. Uh, there are probably Christians and Jews here who have heard that. It's certainly the way in which um, that, that Jews don't talk about this, of course. Uh, Christians talk about this. The idea uh, is that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that the new covenant or the covenant that was once the covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31, has now become universalized. So they forget about the fact that the covenant in Jeremiah 31 was made with the Jews of Judah and Israel that that was the covenant that was made with them. It wasn't made with anybody else. It wasn't made with some church or some Gentiles or anything like that. But nevertheless, the narrative, the narrative is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, that whole paradigm has been shifted. And so now uh, the whole idea of God having a particularism of choosing Jews has now turned into a universalism of everybody's included, including the people like the Scottish Presbyterian Church that has uh, written a hundred page paper on how it is that, and of course the Bethlehem Bible College teaches the same thing, that the land of Israel is now universalized as well. So it's not just the covenant, it's the people, it's also the land. Well, I'll tell you what, I've been teaching this for 20 years and I have never found anywhere that God has universalized anything other than to say that if you believe in God, you can be like Ruth and you can walk into the covenant. You can walk into the covenant because you just said, I want to walk into the covenant. But that he's universalized it through everybody is just silly to me. And um, but it is a whole theology. So maybe you've come across this or uh, it maybe you've come across this. I've not come across that theologically. It's new to me what you're saying. Um, I'm not surprised. Bethlehem Bible College, which is located really close to where I live, is a, is a um, place without theological credibility and, and in fact, quite dangerous. Um, but I will say that just generally, and I, and I, I try not to speak in black and white terms all the time, but I will say that the notion of universalism is probably not so sound because there are particulars and everyone approaches, everyone comes from different perspectives. Everyone has different world, different experiences and different worldviews. And, uh, you can't just bundle everything up and say, uh, uh, you, the X is universal. God is universal. The uh, you can't you can't do that about the Holocaust and make everything into a Holocaust. There was no parallel to the Holocaust, and uh, and and that happens, and it's now become about universal suffering. I, I don't think so. I think people can't make their case historically or theologically, and they have to bundle it all up together. Then they probably don't have standing to be making their case anyway. Well. That's straightforward. (laughs) I don't think you and I have a disagreement about that. Uh, I think that uh, that uh, the idea I I have objected to various people because in general, I never make comments about the Jewish community, but I will now I'm going to say something. In general, the Jewish community has uh, universalized the suffering of the Holocaust and has said that all hatred comes under that same umbrella. And I object to that. I think that the Holocaust and anti-Semitism is a unique entity. It is not, is not universalizable, if you will. And that's, mm-hmm. that's my 
my general view of it. So I've complained to uh, Jewish friends. And but say, you're talking about, but you're talking about Susan. Forgive me for interrupting. You're talking about the Jewish community where you are in America. Right. Right. The majority, the not the majority, the largest number of Jews are here. And when we talk about the Jewish community, that's not the case. We're not universalizing the Holocaust here. And and I would, while while I think it's a mistake to do that, and I think Jews need to understand their own history, um, and, and that it's and the uniqueness of the Holocaust, which does not which does not diminish anyone else's suffering, but make the case why someone else's suffering is important. And let's rally around that as well. But, but just to say what one thing, and I, and I'm, I know this will get political and I don't know what the range of political. If we, try to, we try to not get political. Well, I'm just going to say one thing that upset me. You, you, there's a, there's an issue on the American, on the Southern border with Mexico. Um, when that happened and, and Trump was president, there were a lot of um, uh, analogies between that and the Holocaust. And that I found terribly offensive and inaccurate, completely inaccurate historically. And I would get into fights specifically with American Jews who were saying, oh, it's a Holocaust. No, it's not a Holocaust. It may be horrible. There may be an injustice. We need to fix there's an injustice if we if there is an injustice and we need to care about that. But you need to be intelligent and intellectual and have the integrity enough to be able to make the case as to why that is without borrowing the H word. If you're like most people in the world, you know about the Holocaust, but never met, much less interacted with the Holocaust survivor or heard their stories of suffering and survival. With the remaining elderly survivors dying at an unprecedented pace, in less than a generation, there will be none alive. Yet, while they did survive, and for that we need to celebrate them, many still suffer trauma from their youth. As they age, they have increasing needs, and living on fixed incomes, sometimes with no pension, things as simple and essential as basic foods, heating in the winter, medicine, and inflation can push someone over the line from surviving to struggling again. It can create stress in their lives that reminds them of the suffering they endured as young people. It's just not acceptable that anyone who suffered as much should struggle with basic needs or any undue stress in their twilight years. I want to invite you to join the Genesis 123 Foundation to bless the survivors. Yes, we pray that you'll donate personally and do so generously. And when you do, we also give you the opportunity to send your personal blessings and words of encouragement to the survivors themselves to brighten their day and let them feel your love. Having been privileged to provide financial resources to help survivors on a day-to-day -day basis, I know it makes a difference and is very appreciated. But your personal note that we translate into Hebrew, Russian, or Yiddish really makes them smile and warms their heart. I pray you'll join us by going to genesis123.co slash hug a survivor. That's genesis123.co slash hug a survivor, and please share this with others. We can't undo the suffering that they endured, and there's no limit to what the needs are, but we can never do too much to comfort them in their final years. Please join us. God bless you. I think that probably everybody here would agree that uh, the Holocaust was, or at least I don't teach the Holocaust in my class because it's too big a topic. There is a fellow who is uh uh, who's not here today, I don't think, Jake Binnacore, who teaches uh, the, the, a class called the Holocaust. Okay. And um, he's, uh, he brings in films and all this. And uh, so I don't teach it. I, I kind of skip over it as if you could, but I teach post-Holocaust. And one of the things that um, I'm going to bring this up to you okay. as a Jewish guy who speaks in Christian churches, but I'm I'm going to talk about the nature of anti-Semitism after the Holocaust. In other words, what has happened? Now, we're talking Western culture now, not Africa or South America, but we're talking about the United States, Europe. Uh, what exactly uh, do you see has happened that has permitted this awful anti-Semitism in, in 2023 when we had a Holocaust that brought everybody up short in uh, in 1945, what 
what happened between 1945 and 2023 from your perspective in terms of anti-Semitism? Wow, it's an extraordinary question. Um, I I think that this is I think that anti-Semitism has existed since Jews have existed. I think that I think that the early church is responsible for a lot of that and and has corrupted Western and Christian thought on many levels. I think in mo- in the modern day, while everyone celebrated Israel up until not everyone, but Israel was widely celebrated up until and through 1967. I'm looking at a great book here called Cast a Giant Shadow about uh, about Colonel Mickey Marcus um, in the day that Hollywood in the 50s and 60s when Hollywood would make movies like uh, about the heroism of Israel and, and Exodus and all these other fabulous Jewish and biblical topics. Uh, the, um, uh, what Charlton Heston, Moses, what's that movie? The, uh, what's it called? I don't know, whatever. Exodus. Exodus, that was it, the movie? Okay. Um, Commandments. The Ten Commandments, thank you. So oh. so we, we, we exist in a place where, um, where I think because of maybe the universalism, I'm actually looking, it's a great article that was published in Tablet on March 1st called The Vanishing. Um, specifically speaking of um uh, of the Jewish community in America, the vanishing, how how it's no longer politically correct to be embracing and supportive of Jews, and the Jews should represent um in public life the percent of the population in, in, in America and, and more. It's very, very provocative and, and worth reading. Um and and you have liberalism that equates that equates all kinds of suffering and that doesn't care for um, specific religious um, belief systems, Christian or Jewish, uh, and will go out of their way. And I I apologize, I don't mean to be political. I hope it's not going that way. Um, But I, I think that it's coming from this trend where it's just become politically correct to no longer be advocating for the Jewish people. Uh, this this past, this week on the 29th, New York City Council uh, established a, a um, end, end Jew Hatred Day or something to that day. That's an annual thing now, April 29th. Like, what's the point, really? What it, it doesn't mean anything, a day to end Jew hatred. hatred? I, I don't really think that that makes a great deal of difference. Um, so I'm I'm I don't I don't think that the organizations and institutions that spend tens and hundreds of millions of dollars to combat anti-Semitism have done very much. If any, if anyone were look at their own businesses and see a failure of of tremendous proportions, if I'm in existence to sell widgets and now nobody wants a widget and people hate widgets, then I haven't done my job. And I don't know if there is a way indeed to combat anti-Semitism. And maybe it's crass because I'm living here now almost 20 years. I think anti-Semitism is just part of our life and we'll fight against the anti-Semites, but I don't know that we're going to ever eradicate anti-Semitism. And I wouldn't necessarily spend tens and hundreds of millions of dollars to do so where I can rather invest in Jewish life and, and and continued thriving of Jewish life. And I don't know that that specifically answered your question, but you hit a nerve uh, with me, Susan, because I just kind of, I, I grew up in Princeton and, pe- and, and, and students, non-Jewish students threw pennies at me. Um, I have experienced, by the way, and I'll just say this and then, and then take a break. I've experienced anti-Semitism even among dear Christian friends. I wrote an article once called The 50 Shades of Anti-Semitism. Those of you who are um, culturally adept, you'll know that it takes off on another 50 shades of theme that was less wholesome. But but when, when one man who heads a very major, very major 
pro-Israel ministry once said to me, you can't be Jewish. You don't have a Jewish nose. Oh. Um, I, I, I chuckled to myself. I wasn't going to embarrass him in public and say, you know, that's really stupid and it's offensive and it's anti-Semitic. But I experience those things still today. And, and uh, I know I said that was going to be the last, but, the, but another last thing, this past March, a year ago, I, I spent uh, several days in Kentucky and I was able to in- meet a couple of members of the Kentucky state legislature who I had read about because they were caught on a hot mic saying things that are anti-Semitic, like Jew you down and, and things of that nature. And these were things that I understood it culturally. If you're growing up in the South, I went to Emory. These are things that people say they don't know, they don't understand the the the, the, the cultural, sociological, or religious problems with such statements, and they didn't mean it badly, and they apologized tr- profusely. But these are things that are infused in Western and American life, and I think are and barring a miracle from God will always be. <laughs> <laughs>